title that I floated for the um, the book was The Ruined Tree mm. and it's the idea of this world tree this mythical image as the axis of the world that the Copernican revolution unseated it revealed our perceptions of the stars and the cosmos apparently turning around the earth which is the foundation for this mythical image of the the world tree or or pillar or pole or whatever sorry guys it's an optical illusion <laughs> like to me that that just struck me as it's not necessarily something that the people living through that revolution would kind of specifically talk about or highlight but I just used that as a poetic image for the obvious kind of ruptures that the onset of modernity created in the traditional worldview. You know, I mean, this is, and that's kind of obvious whether you lament or celebrate the, mm. you know, this transformation. So, and the ramifications are huge, obviously, because there was so much going on at that that point, which the Copernican Revolution is a handy symbol for. It's like one of many things that were going on that were unseating uh, traditional points of view so what are the implications there I I don't know for me the fact of having tried to undermine the simplistic traditional versus modern view by introducing another point of articulation in history in prehistory with the agricultural revolution and seeing you know that complicating the the for me complicating the idea of uh, the, the our narratives about history into a more ambivalent picture, not necessarily a kind of like uh, an ascent from uh, benighted uh, superstition, not necessarily a descent from a golden age, but there's kind of multiple things going on in each each transition, and for me, um, this opened up a way. To, I think what I was trying to do was holding on to to the in some senses kind of anti-modern aspects to magic occultism that that I found really appealing that were very you know very much suppressed by the project of modernity but at the same time not wanting to buy uh, wholesale into um, the traditionalist take on those things um, so I was I, I, this these ideas for me were a way of kind of like um, finding um, something within modernity uh, that was neither the uh, modernist celebration nor the traditionalist decrial of this period that we're in. I think one of the things was the idea of the disenchantment of the world or the kind of you know the the, the loss of the, the religious dimension, say, the the death of God, which, and you could, you know, you could, and I, I do kind of like go with a kind of narrative that sees, say, Nietzsche's pronouncement of the death of God as, in some sense, a kind of consequence of the Copernican revolution. And actually in Nietzsche's, um, I think in uh, The Gay Science, where he first announced, his madman runs into the square and announces the death of God, he, he actually uses very, very... Um, Copernican language he talks about the horizon having been brushed out and the earth being cut loose in a void and this is like he's consciously or not kind of like uh, grounding his sense of this religious loss in this astronomical cosmological upset now I can see that and and I I don't know I have have a I guess if you get into occultism to a certain extent you end up with a bit of kind of anti-Christian kind of um, feeling just because of the uh, the suppression of occultism but at the same time you know you you kind of get into mystical aspects and you you you're not necessarily on board with neo-darwinian completely atheist modern scientific view so again you're in this kind of like in-between zone that i was trying to find some space for so one one of the uh, things i uh, looked at was the English religious movements in the, around the Civil War. So the mm. levellers and the diggers and uh, shakers and ranters and so on. And these very interesting kind of heretical religious movements, which... Non-conformist. Non-conformist. And f- 
and very almost kind of animistic in this, their sense of animism or pantheism are words that you could kind of reach for in their sense of like divinity infusing the world that you're moving around yeah. in. And my uh, my image and my story of this that I kind of related through the idea of a polar cosmology was that this was a kind of like the, the primal state of, of human being, the kind of generally animistic kind of cultural psychology of say hunter gatherers um that is is very easy for if you're living in a crappy civilization to romanticize as a kind of a golden age obviously but you know it wasn't a literal golden age but there's this what so while it's not necessarily heaven on earth it's certainly a kind of interfusing of the um our sense of non-human sacred uh agency within the living world instead of it being projected into a far-off heaven. So my idea was through the agricultural revolution and the transition to civilizations and more kind of uh, sky-oriented religions, my image was that this numinosity or kind of other kind of energy that was diffused throughout the world was kind of funneled through this kind of vertical axis and kind of hoarded in a far off world. You've got, you know, kind of the, the Empyrean where God dwells and more and more this, this vital energy is kind of leached out of the, the natural world. You kind of, and this steers you towards a kind of uh, Gnostic cosmology where the, the, world of nature that we're immediately living in is um uh, a trap it's like dead matter yeah that, and um the vitality of divinity there's sparks trapped and but essentially its home is in some really distant far off lofty place in the sky so my sense from the idea of uh, the copernican revolution shattering this um axis which from a traditionalist point of view is just a um, catastrophic loss of orientation. Right. To me, is you could possibly see that as actually a, a freeing up, a kind of release of this vital energy that had been projected into the uh, distant heavens, a release of it back into the, the everyday world and the world of nature. Yeah. So this is a kind of a um, wishful idea that the modern world might be a um a place where we could kind of like rediscover that kind of more embodied immediate spirituality there's obviously many other models of people trying to put forward that view my idea was that these non-conformists in the immediate wake of the copernican revolution were kind of a, you know uh reflexively attempting that they they, they were s- talking about the world turned upside down well exactly yeah which has social yeah. side, but could also be read cosmologically too. Well, we're, that's interesting. We're back to the the beginning where we were talking about the. I was talking about the contrast between the vertical and the horizontal orientation, and that was kind of mixing up with your perspective on an inversion within the vertical axis of going down instead of up. So there's a, there's a certainly a connection there because uh, obviously uh, was it Christopher. I can't remember the historian's name who titled his book about this period, The World Turned, up, turned Upside Down. Yeah. World Turned Upside Down, for sure, but also The Levelers. Yeah. As, uh, which is, you know, and this touches on an important aspect for me, which is the overlap between the socio- socio-political aspects and the cosmological, cosmological religious aspects. Levelers were to- obviously talking about levelling things between the rich and the poor, but cosmologically, I think found that interesting in the wake of a destruction or upset of this image of a verticalized cosmos yeah and if if we are locating the polar cosmos in a city type civilization Mm -hmm. well civilization already has the word city hidden etymologically within it then you start to see temples and priesthoods and this sort of thing so you can it's not hard to see how this this hoarding of numinosity in the heavenly region in the vertical axis can also be seen as being hoarded in the spe- it's like a bank like a yeah. temple is like a bank for lumin- numinosity and central so is bank. a church central bank yeah. yeah well depending if you've if you have a vatican you have a central bank mm-hmm. right 
um, where all the god juice is stored and is doled out to the different bishops who are like the branch managers or whatever. Um, and these guys, that's exactly what all these dissenting Christians, not just in England as well, think of the Munster Anabaptists and, and many other, you know, sort of like sure. D- Dutch and German and, and French radical Protestant movements. They were simultaneously saying, get the god juice out of the bank. We're all, we're here, we're feeling it. It's It's happening like we're speaking in tongues, we're having yeah. crazy sex, we're doing whatever. And fuck the priests. Mm-hmm. Why should we give them our money? Why don't we, we are take... our own prophets. We can interpret the texts. Yeah. We can interpret the text. We can also do the farming. We can take the land away from these guys and, mm-hmm. and stop them having a monopoly. So yeah. there's these two upsets, the spiritual and the social, and it's very easy to see the linkage between them. Yeah. Right? You don't have to be a Marxist or something to see that they're connected. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I certainly started out with quite a uh, knee-jerk reaction against especially materially reductive historical theories, especially things that would kind of reduce spiritual, uh, mythical ideas to political, economic factors. But, you know, this <laughs> you can't get away from the very, very clear kind of mapping between, you know, what, what you talked about as like the, the hoarding of God juice and the hoarding of money and power. It's And it's almost universal, I think, that the the sense of the world being a certain way in terms of it being cosmologically structured in a certain way and the um, the attempt to, uh, whether it's conscious or not, but the kind of um, putting forward of this cosmological vision as foundational, fundamental and natural, um, almost always messily implicated with... Um, some very kind of mundane attempts to shore up power, uh, you know, worldly power. So while, you know, I've not suddenly become a Marxist reductionist, that was what helped me reorient my research when I discovered that Eliad's uh, story was was untrue, was, um, you know, uh, at the same time I started seeing how, and just started finding out that Eliad was a fascist when he was younger and started seeing the the overlaps between this kind of verticalized cosmos that I was so initially inspired by and, uh, you know, very ropey political tendencies. And uh, Jocelyn Godwin in Arctos rails against the kind of fascist appropriation of these cosmological models and uh, emphasizes the pole is not political as a way of countering that. Um and I appreciate the, the sentiment, but I think that was a naive overstatement. Um, you know, we, we don't have to say that uh, every tradition built around a verticalized cosmos that has kind of ascent in its kind of mystical uh, aspects is fascist and is nasty or whatever. We don't have to say that to recognize that there's this really, really deep political kind of entanglement going on there usually in terms of justifying the way things are. Yeah. Yeah. They call it the divine right of kings for a reason. Yeah. And I would argue that maybe... Well, I don't know what you think of this, but it seems that with the demolishing of the polar cosmos, although it's never fully demolished, you know, its architecture survives in so many ways, it certainly survives in astrology, whereby exactly the same cosmos is, is in play... Mm-hmm. except now it's either understood symbolically or understood archetypally or just you don't explain it, you just use it. There's mm-hmm. many ways, but it's still there. It's still a geocentric cosmos with planetary spheres and all that kind of stuff. But in many other ways, it seems that this way of seeing the world and also the use of this way of seeing the world to shore up power and who deserves to have what they have and why you don't deserve it and all this kind of stuff... It just kind of fragmented, but the fragments went on, went right on functioning. Yeah, so I, that was another image I played with, is the idea of this kind of uh, world axis, this tree being felled. And it gets felled, and parts of it fall down. They're still there, but they're kind of, they've fallen down to earth. And one way I kind of envisioned this was a kind of process of internalization. 
and I think we can we can see this going back to the idea of uh, ancient people seeing the sky as a as something solid as a dome. There's this kind of collective interior that we're all existing within, and once the idea of this is shattered, we can imagine a kind of doubling down of emphasis for finding a kind of enclosed interior that maybe is kind of even more i don't know it's kind of the you know the ancient idea of the the sky as a a dome has a certain coziness to it when that shatters and you're like exposed to this cosmic void of infinity then the dome of your skull and your head becomes this kind of like cozy retreat that you kind of like run screaming back to um i you know this is uh, wildly exaggerated kind of poetic thinking but there's a i think there's a element of truth to it and and one aspect of this that i ran with is the cosmological idea of there being a um a split between earth and heaven uh, which is obviously fundamental to cosmologies that have an axis because the whole point of the axis is as a connection between earth and heaven which were primordially separated and we need the axis to kind of like uh, connect us to the the god juice otherwise we're we're bereft of of our foundations now that split between earth and heaven you can see in some very specific ways that being dissolved in the copernican revolution and i think specifically with isaac newton's consolidation of the copernican revolution or at least so okay uh we've got kind of galileo i think is the first person to observe i think it was a comet or one of his observations is one of the first ideas that there's mutable things in heaven so the idea that the heavens aren't necessarily as has been believed from aristotelian belief until then the heavens aren't immutable immortal they're actually undergoing becoming and change just as the earthly sphere is newton newton's theory of gravity then becomes the the first comprehensive model for explaining both how and why uh you know a ball falls to the ground if you drop it from a tower and the motions of the planets in the sky so you've got a single theoretical structure underpinning heaven and earth binding them both into a kind of like homogeneous continuous space rather than divided into the sublunary and heavenly spheres so you've got this split between heaven and earth that is now abolished and I envisioned that being kind of saved by being internalised as a more a more emphatically split uh, sense of the human self the between, human individual between the the intellect and the body uh, now obviously that you know the, there's aspects of that split going way back um, but with Descartes um, yeah other modern developments you can see a kind of like uh, intensification or rigidification of that which I kind of poetically mapped as being an internalization of what was lost from the cosmos into the human person Mm. I feel what you're saying there I feel what you're saying and that if we then want to take our focus back to the hunter-gatherers you know the um, in, in the many different ways anthropologists and scholars have tried to define magic one of them was uh, Lucien Lévy Brûle, the, the French anthropologist, who was observing natives in his fully colonial mindset. But he, although he was a bit blinkered by the civilized versus savage distinction of his day, he was clever enough to realize that um, there is a, a kind of thinking that he defines as magical thinking, which is this sort of being connected to the world and being a participant in the world, rather than an atom, like a monad floating around that's never actually interpenetrated by the world. And that is the sort of magical way of thinking, but 
especially in his later work, he realized, okay, even, even civilized people have this to some degree. So there are these two ways of seeing the world. There's more than two, but there, there are two, at least two important ways of seeing the world. One, the world is something that you are floating in, that is interpenetrating you, that you're um, a kind of... That you can't really draw a line between yourself and the world in any solid way. And then the other way of seeing the world, which is the Cartesian... No, I have an interior world is a hundred percent separated from my body and the body may okay, we might have to give up the body and say it's part of the post Copernican Newtonian universe. It's it's subject to all the usual natural laws. It's lost its uh, soul, as mm -hmm. it were, but we can create this fully individual monadic consciousness being, the the res cogitans, which doesn't have to obey those laws. And it's so you have a two-world model. You have a dualism. And you, but you still need the connective yeah. point between them, which for Descartes was the pineal gland. Right. Which is his world axis within, yeah. within the human. Yeah. Which is fantastic. It, it's, a huge, um, it's a huge problem to connect the, the, the Cartesian self with the Cartesian body. And he came across a rather satisfyingly polar way of doing it. There's a, there's a sort of at the top of the body, in the northern direction, you find this sort of gateway. Mm -hmm. And that's where the soul can kind of yeah. get into the... And I should mention, uh, looking at the... We've been talking about the, um, the head and this internalization. It's, I mean, this is uh, the, the really early stages of the, the research for this. This goes back to when I was living in Leeds and exploring Ilkley Moor. And there's a... There's a carving up there called the swastika stone, which is a kind of curvilinear uh, swastika, um, which I kind of soon discovered was roughly oriented north. And this kind of this was one of my early kind of cues towards uh, the north. But it was all kind of seemed to be vaguely connected in my mind with uh, a Romano Romano Celtic goddess in Ilkley itself um, called Verbaya. And this is in Ilkley was the only altar to her um, that we know of, presumably from an inscription. Yeah. There probably will have been others that didn't have inscriptions on them and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And um, my research indicates that this was... The, the, the Roman troops there were Celts recruited from Gaul. And in, in France, there, there's similar-looking... Uh, relief carving uh, of a goddess uh, and there's actually similar carvings to the swastika stone in the Po Valley in Italy they're called communion roses and the, the, the resemblance is utterly, utterly striking always struck me as a mystery until I found that Celts from Gaul migrated at some point to Italy and actually the troops from Ilkley were ethnically Gaulish but were recruited from that place in uh, near that place in Italy. Right. So, I pieced together the story whereby the Roman troops were Celts who originated from Gaul, had a goddess cult from there. In their migrations, they picked up these. I think they there was a rock art tradition there that predated them, but maybe they picked up the symbol and then carved it on a rock in Ilkley Moor. Anyway, uh, the name Verbaya. Um, I was curious about finding if there was any roots to this name and it became a kind of occult divinatory project using the etymological dictionary um, just so many connections that were you, there's no way I would be able to draw a kind of rigorously substantiated you know, etymological uh, lineage but, but the associations were so vivid and striking to all the other circumstantial things going on in Ilkley that um, I was dumbfounded and especially the V-E-R prefix which if you go into the Latin term vertere meaning to turn yeah. there's a whole host of derivative words the most significant of which is uh, vertex uh, obviously just almost cognate with vortex vortex was the original kind of image of the sky that fascinated me so I was, I was hooked immediately but vertex specifically uh, I think it's a technical term in geometry. It's like the um, if you've got like a, a, a triangle, a right triangle, the, ver the high point is the vertex. It's yeah. where two points meet. It also properly refers to the pole of the sky. And it's the 
proper name of the point on the skull that the hair spirals around. Yeah. And this was the thing, this was the image that captured me, and I was like, that's so primal and fundamental, this kind of mapping between the skull and the sky and all these kind of like ascent traditions where you get these kind of like multi-level transpositions between whether it's the skull and the soul coming out the body or the idea of the soul traveling at the axis and going through the pole and the whole hole in the pole in the sky so i just i had to mention that because i still find that um a really kind of like uh delicious uh little association mapping the the skull to the sky. Yeah. The well, in Plato's Tim- Timaeus, mm. when the Demiurge creates the heaven by cutting up soul into two big circles, one is the strip of the same and one is the strip of the different, mm-hmm. um, and sets the whole thing moving and sets creates the younger gods who are almost certainly the planets and perhaps the stars who are going to do the rest of the kind of fine-tuning, he then creates... The exactly the same arrangement, the same and the different, within the human head, uh-huh. which Plato says, you know, it's basically the body is just a machine for carrying the head around. What? The head is where it's at. <laughs> and in that head, you have exactly the sort of microcosm of this yeah. cosmic um, setup with yeah. the circles of the same and different. And then it becomes epistemological. And then it becomes about how do we think and how do we think through sameness and difference and this sort of thing. Sure. So that skull to sky micro macrocosm relationship is there in Plato and God knows what he's riffing off of but well there's the Indo-European yeah. uh, creation mythology the Ymir the Norse the, god s- the skull of Ymir that's yeah. what I'm thinking of and indeed you know I mean the problem with all that saga literature is it's very late but how far does it go back? We don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff in it which seems remarkably proto-Indo-European, as far as we can reconstruct proto-Indo-European. Like, you know, these kind of very tenuous characteristics, like the association of the underworld and dogs. Okay. That's mm-hmm. probably a proto-Indo-European thing, because mm-hmm. we find it all over. We find it in the Greeks, we find it among the Celts, we find it among the Norse. Mm-hmm. The association of the underworld with apples as well is another one. Mm-hmm. But... That saga material does seem to preserve, or not saga material. The the um, the Eddas mm-hmm. they they do seem to preserve this very maybe primordial Indo-European story. We can compare it with the Vedas and stuff like that about the early creation. And uh, yeah, you do have the sky being constructed from the inside of this primordial giant's cranium. You also found, you know. You know the Genunga Gap? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So b- even before there was Ymir, there was the Genunga Gap. Yeah. You know that the, the Greek word chaos literally means gap? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's not uh-huh. chaos in the, in the Hesiodic tale. Yeah. Is not chaos as we know it. It's not some kind of swirling mass of unformed matter or something like that. It's a gap. Right. That's what there was before there was um, the sun and, or the sky and the earth. Okay, and gap, um, not necessarily implying things that it's a gap between. We never find out what those things might be, right? (laughs) It's just a gap. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's it has a border because you have this uh, in the in the Norse mythology, you end up having this this cow licking the gap, Mm -hmm. and then you know the gap is some kind of landscape, but it's otherworldly landscape. We can't yeah we can't say what it's a gap between. It's just a gap. I think there's. Tales of I, this is coming to another post-Copernican kind of transposition of uh, stellar cosmological um, stuff down onto the earthly sphere. Um, what I uh, do in the in looking at the post the modern period is m- more looking at the mythologies of the the terrestrial poles and the you know, exploration of the terrestrial poles and specifically kind of fantasy literature about them, but. Um, I was just thinking of I think the Vikings who that you know who went as north as as Vikings went and encountered um, this kind of strange frozen seas and whatever. I think that their sense of it was that they they had encountered the Ginunga Gap, like the hmm, there was maybe. a so there's an interesting kind of cosmological. They were imputing a kind of like cosmological aspect to the. The terrestrial world but then I get you know I guess uh, for 
through, in the early modern period, there's all, there's gone, there's there's this sense of constantly coming up to the edge of the world, and not necessarily in a kind of like flat Earth kind of sense, but you're literally like at the, the edge of the map. Yeah. Um, so so you just kind of reach for your your most kind of like you reach for the mythical symbols at the edge of your mythical understanding, like the you know the earliest thing or whatever. This is where you are. You're at the, you're at the edge of the known world. Mm. Um, yeah, the stuff on mapping in, in later in your book is very very interesting. And that, that, I think, is another way in which the post-Copernican celestial order, as it falls to Earth in fragments, ends up taking new root and growing, is this, is this sort of the colonialist mapping project. Mm. Like, why would these people go to the most inhospitable environment in the world and, like, equip these massive... Antarctica, namely, and equip these <coughs> massive expeditions to go and probably die to find an invisible pole that isn't mm-hmm. even a thing it's just a some more ice among all the other ice and why we're like you know why was the whole world on fire to, to yeah. who will be first <laughs> to get to the pole it's like well why and it's a there's a great tale uh of i think inuit uh in canada so some of them there's a there's a um a name they have for the for the north pole um the great nail and i think i i'd kind of come across terms like this in eliad among siberian uh cultures the great nail or something that's like a, you know that it's a it's an axis mundi image it's the what everything's tethered to but actually in this instance with these inuit this was a really recent name that had come from them encountering european explorers uh, and you know they were going to the pole, and the Eskimos could not understand what, why they would be heading to this thing in that direction because there's nothing over there. Oh, the, this pole! Th- they assumed it was there was a big nail or something that they yeah. were going to, an actual nail because why else would these crazy guys be? And I, so I they're, like, they're trying to explain it to them like, look, the whole world is turning, and there's this one spot where it's like a pivot, <laughs> yeah. and it turns out, and then and the interpreters like. He says there's a giant yeah. like nail there. Yeah. Like, what a nail? Yeah, like a big, huge yeah. thing that's like the whole Earth is turning on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Because they can't ex- otherwise explain the quest that these uh, these Europeans are on, and uh, I love that because it completely inverts the usual um, uh, image of you know enlightened modern people and a benighted, superstitious yeah. natives. The natives are like. You know, supremely pragmatic, obviously, because they live in this landscape and they know it really well, and they they know what it's about from a point of view of, of living in it. Europeans are in La La Land, you know. Yeah. they're like, and that's so interesting <laughs> because it's the Europeans. It's under sorry, Eliada, but it's the Europeans, not the northern shamanist, you know, people, primordial people living like traditional humans. It's the Europeans who are bringing the pole, the polar cosmology, yeah, and saying we must find the pole. And these uh, Inuits are like, what? Mm-hmm. If you ask them, presumably, if you ask them what the center of their world would be, and they could fathom the question, they might say, well, like in springtime, it's the place where the seals are, and in the wintertime, it's the igloo, yeah. and you know, etc. And they would have, they would have a knowledge of the stars, and yeah. they'd have stories about it, but but they wouldn't have solidified their cosmology with this abstract totality based on the apparent turning of the earth around the pole um yeah and based on creating a a mathematical grid over the whole planet Mm -hmm. where you can place everything and say this is where this is this is where this is and there's just a few little blank spaces left we have to fill them in and then we've we've really got it all under control yeah because of course now we have everything under control (laughs) yeah you've noticed that have you Um, i've I've noticed that as well (laughs) I was just trying to think, though, of the the implications for for modern Western esotericism of this this kind of narrative that I'm drawing out, and I, I think one of the most significant things that springs to mind is in terms of looking at the terrestrial poles, and in Nor- in the book North, I kind of deal mostly with uh, fantasy literature to kind of flesh out this story, looking at. Um, stories especially of the Antarctic of kind of Lovecraftian 
narratives about uh, discovering things in the Antarctic. Poe. Um, and Poe. But then thinking about modern uh, esotericism, it's kind of unavoidable that a, a really uh, prominent uh, aspect here is the extent to which fantasies about the terrestrial poles have fed into things like theosophy and um, the, and whole areas which are documented by Jocelyn Godwin, which are uh, unavoidably tangled up with um, with fascist political projects. The mythology of the Aryans coming from a, a kind of um, yeah, kind of golden age home at the at the pole. I think there's a there's there's a whole subgenre of of myths about you know before the axis tilted the the North Pole was kind of like a lovely idyllic climate and that's where the whatever root races you know were expelled from when the 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 axis tilted. So you've got all these kind of modern mythologies. Yeah. Um, Probably drawing on some more kind of ancient things. Um, yeah, because there you have the myth of the golden age in a new mm-hmm. form, right? It's a very, very old idea, but now it's been given a kind of new geographic, astronomically informed yeah. spin. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, you also have, we should mention Bulwer Lytton's Vril, The Power of the Coming Race, yeah. with an interior of the Earth inhabited, which was very influential on a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. and on um, Blavatsky. And um, the whole hollow earth and the, 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 which interestingly is another inversion of the ascent pole, the vertical polar cosmos into a descent into the earth. Yeah, back again, like another kind of internalization taking the, the imaginal space that um, people in the geocentric cosmos had, had used the, um, uh, the heavens is a, a space to populate with the imagination. That being kind of uh, taken over by the scientific astronomical imagination, it migrates back down into the mm. um, completely unmapped hollow earth. <laughs> so that's, I mean, just mythically, there's a lot of stuff going on there. In terms of the actual practices and orientations of uh, esotericism, Um I'm not sure. I think you could you could probably see, yeah, the extent to which there's moves within esotericism in modern recent esotericism, which kind of map back to my sense of the importance of um, a, a kind of polar cosmos, the importance of the breakdown of it. Now, to me, to me, that would map to breakdowns in hierarchy, and the yeah, I get, I guess the the kind of I, I'm not very well versed in the turbulent histories of modern esoteric orders, but the, I'm well aware of the kind of yeah the turbulence caused by efforts to reveal the secrets, right. basically publish yeah. the secret doctrines or papers or whatever. And to me, that's that's a kind of very blatant what I would call a kind of post-polar phenomena. You know, there's mm. an attempt to to level out the vertical initiatory hierarchy by by th- throwing open the the secrets to everyone, which uh, I mean, of course, um, if you're really esoteric, you would know that the real secrets inherently cannot be revealed. So yeah, so there's a good. I think there's a good argument there for that tendency, paradoxically, being the genuinely esoteric tendency, because it would, in, ideally, kind of filters out a lot of the bullshit and power motivated structures that that cluster around the I know um, what you mean. safeguarding yeah. of of information yeah um, throw it all open and that which is truly esoteric will still be esoteric I can see that I, I like it it's a it's a egalitarian it's idealist yeah. as well I mean I'm thinking about like the chaos magic and so on and the the attempt to democratize the impulses to democratize all of this kind of often very wacky stuff under the umbrella of kind of proto chaos magic currents such as Robert Anton Wilson and his yeah his his whole kind of like philosophy centered around his Illuminatus trilogy and my mind's kind of quickly uh, looking looking at the um, the landscape now 
the mess that we're in now through the radical democratization of esotericism, which is a huge part of conspiracy theory culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, well, that's, I was going to say, that's one of the... Um, maybe another one of the shattered limbs of the polar world tree. Especially after you've, you've got rid of the polar cosmos, but you've also got rid of God. Mm-hmm. You've got rid of the soul. You've got rid of the world soul. So nothing's really alive. Um, what do you get? Well, you still get a hidden force uh, that you can't see with, with your eyes or, or, or touch with your hands, mm-hmm. but, but behind the scenes controlling everything, which used to be God, or used to be the anima mundi or whatever, but now it's a, a cabal of evil Jews or evil this or evil that who mm-hmm. control absolutely everything, mm-hmm. but it's a bad thing. Yeah. So people talk about this as being a neo-Gnostic perspective, and I can see mm-hmm. the, with due caution about the term Gnostic, why that kind of makes sense. Watch out for the archons. And the overlap here, again, between the cosmological structures and the political economic structures, because right there in those, those conspiracy theories, the primary kind of like uh, concern is, is the, um, the structures of elite political yeah. power and financial pyramidal concentration of uh, financial power yeah. at the summit of a pyramid yeah and I think maybe maybe people at least some section of the conspiracy theory world they get the first part right like we're being fucked yes you are however I would then make the statement you don't need to posit a all-knowing godlike conspiracy to explain that which can easily be explained and elegantly explained by human greed and stupidity, mm-hmm. right? If you already got human greed and stupidity and a hierarchical technological culture in place, you don't need a further explanation yeah. for why you're being fucked. Yeah. That would be my take on it. That's why I'm not a conspiracy theorist, as it were. Yeah. But you can see uh, conspiracy theory as a, a dark, outflowing of let's say post post Copernican post central how do you understand a centralized probably more centralized than we've ever seen in human history type of culture society civilization yeah if you don't have a center you don't have a metaphysical center anymore how do you understand that well there must be a center but there can't be God and it can't be in the heavens because the heavens are just we've been there and it's just empty you know freezing cold emptiness it must be here on earth it must be some guys in suits Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Within that, within that frame, I would boldly describe the that the conspiracy mindset as a kind of incomplete Copernican revolution. There's still this clinging to the idea of a all powerful uh, centre to everything. But as you say, it's kind of framed negatively. Mm. Um, but as many critics of conspiracy theory point out, it's it just seems to be the case that people would. It's more comforting to think that there's some evil people controlling everything than to think that no, no one's in control. Yeah, nobody's driving, yeah. yeah. Um, but then it's a mystery, it's a complicated mystery to look at the fact that so that such a... I mean, the, the global structure of wealth is... You know, if you, if you want to broadly kind of image it, it it's incredibly pyramidal. Mm. So how is that structure persisting... If there if there isn't a corresponding, um, you know, pyramidal structure of power guiding holding it. it in that way, and I think I try to kind of um, I think that you know it's clear that there's um, so many dangers in looking at things poetically, but just as a as a hopefully useful tool to kind of see the modern world as a kind of um, strange place where this old pyramidal image of the cosmos has been destroyed but as we haven't completely let go of it and we've allowed it to kind of complexly permeate our world we've managed to well we're not sure we've completely created this but we we've kind of you know evolved this world that is strangely kind of distributed centralization there's a kind of like there's a, a way in which our uh, society maintains this kind of 
pyramidal structure with less uh, centralized points of control. Yeah, it's like things are complex. Things are complex. There's a lot of order going on in yeah. this world, and there's also a lot of disorder. Mm -hmm. um, but things have never been, in some ways, have never been more central. I mean, pe people talk about globalism, you know, and they're not talking about nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's something, right? Like a global order, interconnected, humans all working on the same project to some degree. Mm -hmm. With a few on honorable exceptions, like the, the, whoever's left out in the Amazonian rainforest. Yeah. And etc. Talking about esotericism in faced with the, the destruction of the geocentric cosmos, one thinks of Giordano Bruno. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you think of is what did they do to him? They burnt him at the stake. In the year 1600, which I know is only, it is only relevant be, because of a completely arbitrary calendrical system, mm -hmm. but still seems somehow significant. Sure. You know? But his. He's interesting because for him God isn't dead. The the Axis Mundi's gone. <coughs> and you know, Lucretius has been rediscovered by humanists in this period. So you can now read in Latin, which he reads fluently, an account of a decentralized infinite cosmos of inhabited worlds, which is blowing everyone's minds. And then Copernicus is saying opening the door to that in current mathematized astronomical thinking. And Bruno's like Great, let's get even more esoteric. Yeah. Let's, in, let's bring that into the edifice. And we'll still do astrology, and we'll still do astral, astralized memory arts based on the decans and all this kind of stuff. But the universe can be infinite as well. Yeah. So there's that take, where you, you have an ensouled cosmos. You have a cosmos that is, that is a product of a good god who is infinite. And you say the infinity of the cosmos just makes our appreciation of God's infinite amazingness even more. Mm -hmm. That is one option that can be taken when the when the pole gets destroyed. Yeah. Um, you, you say, ah yeah, that pole was rubbish. That you know that, that whole pole pole of the world thing was, was rubbish. It's much bigger than that. Yeah. But that just takes us deeper into this appreciation of, of the ensouled and living and uh, interconnected beauty of the universe. Yeah. Um yeah, I can't. I mean, I think that there was obviously a kind. Of, I think the I think Christianity dropped the ball there because because there wasn't. They didn't initially react strongly against Copernicus. Um, I think his his book was only placed on the papal ban list like sixty years after his publication. And yeah, I think there's probably a complex story there as as to why. For a time, the church kind of doubled down on, you know, there's little bits of the Bible where it says, you know, the the sun goes around the earth or whatever. It's kind of... Bruno certainly... I mean, he was he was running around Europe trying to sell his, his vision as the way forward. And while he was maybe too radical for mainstream Christianity, mainstream Christianity certainly missed a trick by ignoring that sense of the... Copernican revolution is an opportunity to, yeah, to grow. Yeah, you know. but now, but do you think that's be partly because of some instinctive mapping? I say this because this is my reading. the The church authorities had an instinctive understanding that their worldly authority would be shaken if their worldly pole was yeah. shaken. I think I mean that seems natural to me, and it's a kind of uh, it's a it's a perspective you could you know you could probably back up with only circumstantial evidence, but there'd probably be good evidence that that there was just there's too deep a, an association between. I guess it's you could see it as a as a tactic on the part of centralized powers to look to this particular aspect of the um, observable world. And try to naturalize their own power by binding um, their structures of power to this apparent structure of the cosmos. Worked really well for a long time, but bad luck when that aspect of the cosmos was revealed to be a complete illusion. Mm. And it's like, ah, like, you know, yeah. how do we. And I think, yeah, I think the, uh, the embeddedness of that connection was just too deep for. 
the powers that be to 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 roll with it very easily. You know, yeah, it was a painful process of adaptation. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I suspect we can trace that all the way back to developments in the late Empire, when you have a Christianization of the idea of the res publica as essentially one God, one heavens, one earth, one empire. Mm -hmm. That then gets kind of adopted by all these squabbling West European kingdoms who aren't, who aren't the empire, even though Charlemagne tries to be the empire. They're not the empire, but they can, they can take some of that shine and be like divine right of Kings. Yeah. God is in his heaven and the King is on his throne. Everything is, as it should be and then it's probably no coincidence that with new cosmological ideas in the 17th century and new economic models and new everything these political forms start to splinter and crack and break up and yeah. um, even see radical I mean really radical political challenges in these in these dissenting Christians and others who are like let's just smash the lot and yeah. start an egalitarian commune you know mm-hmm. I, and I mean, there would be a really interesting kind of comparative control for whatever theory you'd come up about what happened in the West through looking at China, which I, I, I to a certain extent, go into some of the ancient kind of medieval um, polar aspects of Chinese civilization because they're very, very strong there. The very explicit polar um, orientation to political power. Um, as in the um, the emperor would the emperor would be seen as having ancestors who dwelt in the circumpolar region. This was the significance of the circumpolar region in uh, in ancient China. Now, exactly how the Copernican Revolution filtered through to China, I have no idea, and that'd be that'd be very interesting. Exactly how that was processed by traditional uh, Chinese culture and what was going on in China as that filtered through, how how that played into, was made use of by modern political upheavals in China. Something I'd never gone into, but would be presumably a lot... You'd have a much clearer... It's still very complex, but a much clearer story than in the West, where the whole significance of the poll... It is more diffuse and scrappy in, yeah. in the West, mm. where it's so strong in China. Like, what did they do with the, this this news from Europe that we, we we go around the sun? Yeah, it's all an illusion. Gyrus, stay esoteric. I will do. <laughs> <laughs>